the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to reflect upon Palm Sunday and then talk about awe. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Monday afternoon. Hope you're having a great Monday after a good weekend. Uh, it, it is always helpful, right, to reflect upon Holy Week when it comes. So we're going to get into the news and this, but I, th- I thought it appropriate to start our show uh, just reflecting upon the week that we are in. We can uh, run so crazy and we can just go, 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 go. And we can uh, also have this, uh, we're going to talk about this later, but but things like Easter and stuff can become familiar to those of us. Uh, who have grown up in the church that that we can lose kind of like what it is that we are in the midst of right now. But it is Holy Week. It is uh, for those of us uh, who claim Jesus as Savior. This is the time. This is the week each year where we remember uh, the the death of Jesus and and what he did in in laying down his life for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And then uh, the celebration. So that's the solemn nature of Friday. And then the celebration of Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we proclaim he is risen, he is victorious. Uh, and it's such a great celebration. And, and I wanted to start our week trying to focus us on what is coming, because uh, so often I know in my life, it can just be about what is right in front of me. And I can lose sight of uh, what is the big picture and what is most important. And if, if we can slow down uh, and we can take time to reflect, we become reminded th- that what we celebrate this week is the foundation of our faith. Paul said uh, that without the resurrection, uh, we are to be pitied. That, that what we're doing is foolishness, but with the resurrection, there is life and there is hope uh, and there is uh, forgiveness. There is reconciliation. There is all of this stuff that we long for. It is is bound up in the good news uh, of ultimately the empty tomb of Sunday morning, that he is risen. And, and yesterday uh, it was Palm Sunday. The, kind of the start of Holy Week. I know different traditions handle these different ways, but Palm Sunday, kind of the the start of Holy Week as we remember uh, and celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, and it's such a strange scene. I'm a pastor. I had a chance to preach a Palm Sunday message yesterday. And it is it is such a strange scene because on the one hand, there are people waving palm branches, proclaiming Hosanna, calling Jesus King, calling him Savior. But on the other hand, it is kind of a pitiful scene as Jesus is being extolled by peasants and the sick and the children. Uh, And he's on the back of a donkey, not on a chariot. And he is crying 
That's the most striking part. Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And he knows what he's going in for. The people thought he was coming in to take his throne to uh, to uh, finally overthrow the Romans, quite possibly. But Jesus was coming in as the sacrificial lamb to lay down his life. And so much is going to change in that week as Jesus goes riding into Jerusalem. Uh, I found this just description at Christianity Today. Uh, It says this, in this reading of Jesus's actions, Palm Sunday reveals his humility. He is not like other kings who enter cities atop war horses in celebration of bloody victory, surrounded by those society deems worthy. He is the humble king who saves by dying for the sins of the world. And I thought that was just a great way to encapsulate what Palm Sunday is and what we celebrate here in Holy Week, the humble king who saves by dying for the sins of the world. And so as we talk about news and as we talk about everything else, be reminded uh, of what is most important about this week. Not that it's spring break, not that it's, you know, we're going to talk later about that ship getting freed from the Suez Canal. Not any of the, all of these things are important. Uh, but what is most important uh, is taking time to reflect this week upon the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, where we ultimately proclaim on Sunday, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And what a great celebration that is. So a great way to kick off Holy Week here on The Common Good. We'll continue to reflect throughout the week uh, on the good news of Easter. But we do want to talk about uh, some of the news. And and, and where I wanted to start was, did you see that uh, CNN special last night? kind of dissecting, they almost called it an autopsy of our COVID-19 response. And uh, the pandemic now has been going on for over a year, Uh, you know, north of 500,000 people uh, have lost their lives, uh, according to statistics. Uh, And and there was some really interesting things to come out of there that that, uh, were enlightening, that were sobering, uh, that were disheartening. One of the ones that stood out, if you're if you saw the news this morning, kind of one of the big headlines from that special was Dr. Deborah Burks uh, recalling a very difficult phone call she had with President Trump. But here was the here was the money line. She said hundreds of thousands of covid deaths were preventable. She said, I look at it this way. The first time we have an excuse, she said about the initial surge of the deaths. And then she said all of the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. And that was sobering to hear. Uh, And when I heard that, there were a couple of reactions I had. I would love to know your reactions. Some of them were just, like I said, sad. Man, could you imagine having lost somebody? Maybe some of you out there have and and hearing it wasn't uh, there, that it was in some ways preventable or could have been mitigated. But then, I don't know, I struggled with the fact that Dr. Burks was in the room. Like she seems to be passing blame here when in fact, uh, she was part of the team, and I understand there's power struggles, and that's part of what she was talking about, and there's pressure, and there's other things, but uh, she could have said something back then, and, and, and so I do struggle with that, and it made me think about this other article I read this week that says, a new study, U.S. media's COVID coverage slants heavily negative, that even as we're kind of coming out of it, and we'll talk more about this later in the week, but even as we seem to be coming out of COVID-19, as more and more people are getting vaccinated uh, as the weather gets nicer, as all of these things are going on, that the studies are showing that the uh, increasingly the news media coverage is slanted to the negative in almost in some way, 
Uh, like they don't want to celebrate the good things going on. Like they don't want to celebrate all of the data that is showing positive uh, movement here. And I felt that this morning as I watched, uh, what did I watch this morning? The Today Show uh, that basically wanted to start by talking about how things are upticking and how things are this and, and didn't even talk about until much later in the show. Uh, a lot of the positive news. And so I don't know what to do with that. I, I wanted to throw that your way just to go, what do we do with that? Because um, the, it's certainly true. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot on the show that our news media is not um, neutral. And so where do we get our news? What do we believe? And, and you see our nation continually to be divided around the COVID-19 response, but also what needs to happen going forward. And so uh, as I watched that CNN bit last night, that CNN documentary, that's kind of what came to mind to me. Like, what I, I, I kind of don't even know what to believe anymore. Uh, and so we're going to go about, you know, doing what we're supposed to do, uh, but also looking for the good news and and feels like we're kind of starting to hopefully come out of this. Well, we're off and running here on a Monday afternoon. Coming up next, uh, an interesting and somewhat, again, sobering article at Desiring God. Some lose God while serving God, a subtle danger in Christian ministry. We're going to talk about that article next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. As I've told you before many times on this show, uh, my primary role, my primary job in life is I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. I've been for 20 years now. I used to be on staff at Glen Ellen Bible Church in Glen Ellen. Uh, and then out of Glen Ellen Bible Church, about 11 years ago, we started a church in Downers Grove, uh, South Downers Grove, called uh, Four Corners Community Church. And I've had the pleasure to be the lead pastor there for the last 11 years. And so that's my primary role. I'm a pastor. Uh, and then this this radio show and, and this is is a ton of fun and, and is a something that we kind of do on our side. And so our pastoral life speaks a lot into uh, this, what we talk about here on the radio. That's why Ian's no longer here, right? He's primarily a pastor and he took a job at a church in Tennessee, uh, his primary role as well. And so I give that as background to say at Desiring God, the uh, fascinating article by, uh, by Joe Rigney, he wrote, some lose God while serving God, a subtle danger in Christian ministry. This uh, I think really applies to pastors, but I in some ways think this just applies to all Christ followers in some way or another. I just want to read some of this article. Uh, Joe writes this. There is but one God that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. He says, whenever I teach my course on C.S. Lewis at the Bethlehem College and Seminary, I always include his book, The Great Divorce. I love the book because of the way it clarifies the nature of the choice that confronts each of us every day. In the book, the narrator rides a bus from a dreary, hellish town into heaven where angels and saints converse with the condemned spirits, imploring them to turn from their sin and enter in. The damned ghosts are essentially exaggerated caricatures of us, designed to show us the temptations and snares that we face in this life. The ghosts are damned because there is always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. Lewis insists that there are innumerable forms of the choice, some obvious, some not so much. But one of the most frightening, Lewis calls it the subtlest of all snares, is the temptation to mistake a means for the end. 
anyone who speaks or writes about God for a living, he writes, is likely to feel this temptation keenly. Lewis himself faced it regularly in his ministry as an apologist. But before we explore how this temptation takes shape for preachers, teachers, and other communicators of God's word, consider how Lewis illustrates it in The Great Divorce. And Rigney's going to go right about uh, The Great Divorce, uh, about how Lewis introduces this temptation uh, through his guide in The Great Divorce, George MacDonald. And so you could go back and read this about the real artist and the true artist. Uh, But now he moves on. Abstract truth tends to remain on the surface. Real transformation comes when we get concrete and personal. He says, I'm no artist, real or otherwise, but I'm a teacher and a preacher. And I love to teach and preach, the author writes here. And reading Lewis on the danger of mistaking the means for the end challenges me precisely at this point. I know how, okay, here's the money line. Are you ready? I know how easy it is for serving God to replace knowing God. Boom. Let that sit for a second, friends. Friends, listen to that again. I know how easy it is for serving God to replace knowing God. And so here are four ways that I try to fight for joy and reality and God's centrality in the face of my own love for teaching. And so uh, the author of this article, Joe Rigney, is going to write about, he's going to discuss how do we fight, especially those who teach and write and they're kind of whose job it is and pleasure. Uh, to to talk about God and write about God. How do we not replace serving God for knowing God? He's going to give a couple different ways here, but let me just say this is a real temptation. Uh, this is not some theoretical temptation, but this idea of knowing God. I've also a lot of times heard it talked about and talked about myself about the the um, the struggle about knowing about God much more than knowing God having facts about God, knowing theology, knowing and just being immersed in it, but not having a relationship with him, not knowing his love, not knowing our need deeply. And and when you're a pastor or a writer or an author or whatever else it might be, uh, the author here is saying that that's even a more pronounced temptation as you go into uh, serving God takes place of knowing him. And so how does he fight this? He says, first, I regularly remind myself that I'm always in God's presence. As theologian Jobin Webster put it, we never talk about God behind his back. <laughs> it's striking that the ghostly artist in The Great Divorce opens the conversation by taking the Lord's name in vain. He's standing in the entrance to deep heaven, and God is simply an exclamation, an empty word, and not the most important part of his reality. And again, he says, it's impossible to talk about God behind his back. So we don't compartmentalize. It's not God time and other time, but we don't talk behind God's back. God is always present. Second, he says, I aim to rejoice when other people see and say things better than me, or when they see things that I see and they say them first. When someone else has the insight, makes the connection or expresses the truth that I love in a beautiful and compelling way, I ask myself, do I truly rejoice in truth or do I rejoice only in the truth through me? Ah, oh, it's good. In other words, I try my best by the grace of God to drink from the fountain of humility and lose the wrong sense of ownership in my own works. Mm, that's good. Number three. Uh, third, I labor by the grace of God to really see before I say, to stop, to meditate, to look, and to look long and hard. I labor to make my seeing into feeding. Come and see. He is endless. Come and feed. My seeing must be a feeding if I'm to avoid mistaking the means for the end. 
to see and to immediately say is like putting food in your mouth and spitting it right back out. Instead, I want to eat the truth, digest it so that it becomes part of me and comes out with the richness that a deep ownership of the truth provides. That's really good. Last one. Lewis helps me answer this question. Ask, can I walk away? He helps me answer this question by reminding me that all means must die. Every natural love, including the love of teaching, he says, will rise again and live forever in this country, but none will rise again until it has been buried. Buried. If, as Jesus says, following him means taking up my cross daily, then it means that every day my love of thinking and teaching and preaching must die. Intellectually, I know this isn't a difficult choice. God is my portion, but my prayer is that God would grant me the mercy to feel the simplicity of this choice day by day. And then he's going to end by saying, aim at heaven, aim at heaven. The promise, here's how he ends the article. The promise, of course, is that if we let the means die, they will be raised. The choice between the means and the end is a zero-sum choice only if we try to stop at the means. But if we press through the means to the end, if we paint for God's sake or defend the truth for God's sake or spread the gospel for God's sake, give to the poor for God's sake, teach and preach and write for God's sake, then we find that all these means become truly themselves. What's more, they become truly ours. Indeed, they become more ours than for being his. He goes on to quote Lewis, put first things first and we get second things thrown in, put second things first and we lose both first and second things. Then he says in mere Christianity, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you will get neither. A really challenging article there called Some Lose God While Serving God Up at Desiring God. We'll put that up at our Facebook page. Coming up next, I want to talk about two tweets that I saw this week and one particularly about a show that I binge watched last week that I would love to discuss next here on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Beautiful Monday afternoon. Hope you are enjoying it. Kids are off on spring break. And uh, yeah, hopefully you're getting a little bit of time out in the sun. I know later in the week it's going to get cold again, then get warm again, cold again, warm again. Such is life in the Chicagoland area, although it is Easter week. It is Holy Week. Uh, and we want to celebrate that as we look forward this week to remembering uh, the brutal death of Jesus Christ on the cross and ask why. Why did he do it? That's the that's the message of Good Friday. Uh, and then the message of Easter becomes um, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And we can celebrate that and we can uh, claim that victory that, that Paul says to the Corinthians that that because the tomb is empty, um, where, O oh, death is your victory, where, O oh, death is your sting, and especially in the midst of a pandemic. To be able to proclaim where, O oh, death is your victory, where, O oh, death is your sting, and to, to remember that ultimately Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death through the empty tomb is something that we celebrate rightfully so this week. Friends, don't let the uh, good news become old news to you if you've been around churches for a while and you've been around the faith for a while. Do not lose sight of the fact uh, that this is such unbelievable news. Uh, and that, that's what we're going to talk about in the next segment, too. going to tie it into something from my vacation last week. But speaking of my vacation last week, uh, while on the plane, uh, we, had a, we had a very long trip. We went out to Arizona, but uh, here, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. I tend to try to get the best deals that I possibly can. 
and so one of the ways that I did that was to get our airline tickets through Priceline. And when you do that, you do get the best prices, but you don't always get the most direct route. And so uh, what we did was on our flight out there, our flight home, thankfully, was direct. Our flight out there, uh, we went, you know, the best way to get from Chicago to Arizona is with a layover in Detroit. And so that's what we did. And what is normally a three and a half to four hour trip turned into a seven hours of travel. Uh, but hey, the the ticket the tickets were cheap, uh, and so uh, had a lot of time. Had a lot of time to watch things, read things, uh, and so I'd heard a lot about uh, the show. Is it on Netflix? It's on Apple TV, I believe. Uh, Ted Lasso. Anyone ever? Anyone out there uh, seen Ted Lasso? Ten episodes, half hour each, uh, and I, so I just kind of burned my way through them. And can I just say? Uh, because I wanted to watch this show because it was just been getting a ton of pub. A lot of people I really like have been watching it. They've been saying great things about it. Uh, and, and just um, I want to see what's the fuss all about. What, what, what are we talking about? And I got to say, anyone out there looking for something to watch, I loved it. Uh, watched all 10 episodes and and just really enjoyed it. And one of the reasons is, is because it's so heartwarming. Uh, we, we tend to, especially when we're streaming and binge watching stuff, it, it tends to uh, a lot of time have an edgy take or this or that, but what makes Ted Lasso, I think why it got such uh, praise and why it won so many awards is because Jason Sudeikis and others in the show uh, are endearing. You root for them. You like them. And, 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 and the main character, Ted Lasso, who is played by Jason Sudeikis, he basically wins the, the team, the country, everybody over by his kindness. It's really a, a message of kindness and a show of kindness and forgiveness and grace. Uh, and and the, the, the characters are really complex. It was just wonderful. It, I would encourage you to watch it. And because I had just watched it, uh, kind of the coming together of our world, Scott Saul, somebody who we quote often on the show. In fact, we're going to read a blog post from him later in the show. Uh, but somebody we talk about often on the show, Scott Sauls, he's a pastor, author, writer, uh, speaker uh, down in Nashville. Uh, he is primarily uh, the pastor of uh, Christ Presbyterian Church, I think it's called, in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm doing it off the top of my head. Uh, but he also tweets a lot and he tweets great stuff. And so here's what I want you to hear that he tweeted, because it has to do with the show I was just talking about. Scott Sauls wrote this on Twitter. He says, theory on why. Uh, Mr. Rogers has reemerged as an icon and Ted Lasso is such a favorite. People are exhausted by outrage and are starved for kindness. So that's Saul's uh, idea there. He says uh, there has been this reemergence of Fred Rogers, of Mr. Rogers, two movies last year about him, a documentary. Uh, if you saw the movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor? It was just fabulous. But there seems to be this re-emergence. You're seeing YouTube clips shared of Fred Rogers, of Mr. Rogers. Uh, and you start to think, why is that? Because this guy was, you know, he hasn't been on TV in a while. He's been dead for a while. Uh, why this re-emergence of Mr. Rogers? And why is this show Ted Lasso kind of become a cultural phenomenon? And so I won a ton of awards. Why are people kind of gravitating to it? And Saul's is saying this, because what they both have in common is that people are exhausted by outrage and they are starved for kindness. When I read that, I thought to myself, that is exactly right. 
what did I love about Ted Lasso? It's the moments where you thought there was going to be this great conflict there. He's going to go. He always met it with kindness and that that kindness won people over. What was what was it about Fred Rogers that brought depth, right? It was his kindness. People would be like, what is who is this guy? I'd encourage you to go Google uh, Mr. Rogers and uh, graduation commencement speech. And here's some of the stuff he said. There's a simplicity to both of them. But they disarm people with their kindness. And Fred Rogers obviously was a real person. Ted Lasso is a show. But I think they get at the same thing. And then I think Saul's is right. And I want to dig down a little bit deeper into this. That people are exhausted by outrage. I know I'm exhausted by outrage. How about you? Like, Like the outrage of our culture exhausts me. That you get on social media and people are complaining and complaining and and nitpicking and everything is outrage and cancel. And I understand that it's not always without merit, but it's so tiring that people are exhausted. I think the word exhausted is correct. They're exhausted by outrage. And, and what then is the antidote? Saul says, and people are starving for kindness. We do not live in a culture of kindness. We do not live in a culture of grace. And so when people come up against it, it's it's transformative. It is it, it deeply changes us. It deeply has an impact. Why? Because all we're used to is outrage and anger, outrage and anger. But instead, we get this kindness uh, and it becomes transformative. And and what's the connection point? The church must be leading the way not in outrage but in kindness. If we truly do have a culture that is starving for kindness and exhausted by outrage, is the church adding to that exhaustion or are Christ followers giving something else and feeding our culture something else, that being grace, that being kindness, that being forgiveness that we see in our, in, 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 in our Savior? There's a, there's an opportunity here, right? It's not just Mr. Rogers. It's not just Ted Lasso. They are, they show us, they're giving us a window into our culture and what people are searching for. They're searching for grace and kindness and unexpected forgiveness where always we're being met by cancel and outrage. And the question is, is the church going to uh, be able to do that? Is the church going to be able to meet that, uh, that bar? I wonder, because I think there's an opportunity for the church right now. We see it in the reemergence of Mr. Rogers. We see it in the in the widespread popularity of this show, Ted Lasso. We see a culture exhausted by outrage in the words of Scott Sauls and starved for kindness. And I will ask you again, church, are we going to meet that? Are we going to use are we going to are we going to meet that cultural opportunity so that people can be pointed to Jesus. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about something else that happened on my trip while we were out of town and something it teaches us about our faith. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, as I said last week, um, my my family, so my wife and my three kids and I, uh, we had the opportunity for about five days to go out to Arizona. Uh, and so 
The reason we did this was a couple fold. One, just to get a break, to get a different place, to get out in the sun, to just have some family fun away from the distractions and the pressures of day to day life, of just kind of the in and out, the day to day of the routine. Uh, and so we flew out to Arizona and went to a couple different places. We went to Sedona. If you've never been to Sedona, man, is it a beautiful place to go. Just fun hiking, found a wonderful um, place to eat there, walked around the little town there. I couldn't, uh, couldn't recommend it uh, enough. And then uh, we got to go to a White Sox game. So to be able to go to uh, a... Uh, a sporting event in the midst of all that we've been going through. It's been like well over a year since going to a sporting event. So, you know, you had to wear masks and they were, it was very limited seating, but to sit out in the sun and hear the crack of the bat, man, it was so nice. Hopefully some of you will be getting out to Wrigley and the guaranteed right here in the coming, uh, in the coming weeks here as the baseball season opens up. Uh, but Swam in the pool, you know, my wife and my oldest daughter went on a hot air balloon ride at sunrise in Phoenix. Like that's craziness. Uh, So anyway, just a blast. I love being away with my family simply because we can uh, just be together. Again, it's not the, hey, I got to run you here. I got this homework to do. I got to go do this for my job, whatever else it might be. But it's just, just us and just having fun and being together. And so uh, the highlight or like kind of the the major part of our trip uh, was a drive up to the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, uh, but it is unbelievable. You you just can't describe it. And so I'd been there once before, but my kids had never been there. And so we drove up there, we got in uh, and park and start to walk and you're all ready for it. And then you come upon the canyon. And if you've never been there, it is the most breathtaking thing you'll ever see because you literally, it is so complex and so deep and so that, that it almost looks two dimensional. Like you can't get, you, your mind can't almost grasp what you're seeing. And you take those first couple minutes, those first 10 minutes, and you just stare out at the canyon and, you know, you're, you're hearing Chris Tomlin singing in your head, how great is your God? How great is my God? Uh, and, and, and you're singing like you're, you're, you're thinking of the book of Psalms and, and, and you're just seeing this majesty of creation. And you're just in awe. And it really is a little bit of an indescribable thing about the first time you see the Grand Canyon. It's similar how I felt the first time I saw the Niagara Falls. It's just there in front of you and raging with this power. And you just are like, what am I looking at? You feel small. You're reminded of the majesty of God and his creation. Kind of Romans chapter one about all of creation (laughs) kind of crying out and pointing us to God. But something strange happens when you're at the Grand Canyon. Okay, I shouldn't make this case for everybody. Something strange happened for me. uh, Forgive my dogs making an appearance down there. Uh, something strange happened to me, uh, as I was at the Grand Canyon after about an hour of walking alongside the rim, it came, kind of became a little commonplace. It's still as majestic and awe inspiring. And if you slowed down and looked at it, it was still, it, it was nothing had changed about it, obviously, but it just became a little less, uh, surprising and majestic. And why is that? Because of familiarity. We'd been there for an hour. I even found myself as we were walking, it came to to be about lunchtime. And uh, 
I, I was thinking to myself more, uh, less about this Grand Canyon that was next to me, this wonder of the world, and more about my Subway sub that was in my bag. Some of the majesty had been lost. Why? Familiarity. And the, the awe was replaced by familiarity. And that changed throughout the day. Obviously, there were moments where you kind of shook yourself out and you went, wow, what am I looking at? We had the chance then to take a little bus over to one part. And then that allowed us to go down a trail where we actually walked for probably a half mile into the canyon a little bit. And that changes your perspective on things. But it did strike me as surprising uh, for me how quickly it became a little bit common for me. And that I needed to be shaken out of it. And let me, I'm a pastor, uh, let me make the, uh, the connection to our faith here. How many of us who have been Christians, particularly for a long time, so maybe you grew up in the church, uh, maybe you, you've always been around things of faith, maybe it's been decades now. How easy is it for us to lose our sense of awe? I think about that particularly as we move into Easter week here. How easy is it, like how I said with the Grand Canyon, a losing of awe? How how easy is it for us to look at the good news of the gospel? That though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that, that this gift, this overwhelming gift has been given to us. How easy is it for us to go, oh, that's great. And as we've said earlier, that the good news doesn't become bad news. It just becomes old news. And and it becomes commonplace. And and that, that's even hard to say, right? Like, of course it doesn't become commonplace. And I would say to you, doesn't it? And so what's the antidote to that? The antidote is to be shaken out of that, to be reminded of what is out there, to be reminded of the good news. The same way that every now and then I'm walking around the Grand Canyon, I had to just stop and look out and go, wait a minute. That's the Grand Canyon. I think every now and then, no matter how long you've been a, a, a Christian, whether you're a pastor or a professor or just, you know, a Christ follower, every now and then we need to slow down. We need to reflect upon who we are and what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, and go, oh, my goodness, that is unbelievable. That is such good news because we lose our awe. I think one of the most important fuels to our Christian faith, to our faith growing, I think the fuel is awe. And the lack of awe leads to complacency. And how do we become complacent? It's just by familiarity. Eh, you know, I read that story, oh, the Easter story, I've read that a hundred times, thousand times. Now, how about this week we read it again for the first time? What? Jesus rose from the dead? What? He, he hung on the cross for me and for you? We, I have forgiveness of sin? That, uh, that the wages of sin is death, but the, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? What? And be again in awe. Much the way, standing next to the Grand Canyon, I, every now and then I had to be shaken to go, oh, that's amazing. Friends, my prayer for us is that this Holy Week, we would again fall down in awe. And that would fuel our faith. That would fuel our obedience. That would fuel our worship. Be in awe of the good news of the gospel because it truly is good news.
Well, coming up next, I want to talk about some uh, some headlines, that crazy story in the Suez Canal, that ship stuck in the Suez Canal, and also the flooding going on in Nashville. I want to talk about both of those headlines next here on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, that ship finally is moving at the Suez Canal. And then we're going to be joined for two segments by Dr. Justin Bailey, Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University and the author of Reimagining Apologetics. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, did you have you been following this crazy story out of the Suez Canal? Uh, I, I knew of the Suez Canal and how it works so importantly, but but this ship getting stuck there, which finally today it appears that there is movement going on. And it, uh, I haven't seen the news in a little while today, but it seemed like uh, they made a breakthrough and things might start to unclog. But uh, but the fact that the Suez Canal could be blocked by this this one ship. Now, this ship is just enormous. It is someone said uh, I was watching the news this morning, said it's 200 tons is this ship. Uh, but but I think what we're learning is something important that that one ship, that one accident kind of choked out a lot of uh, the world's commerce and what's going on. I wanted to read this a little bit because I, I don't you know, the the trade routes through the Suez Canal are, are, are a little bit out of my pay grade. Uh, but listen to this. This is uh, an article at CNN, an opinion piece. Uh, it's entitled this, Suez Canal Traffic Jam Blocks the World's Jugular Vein. Opinion by Salvatore Mercangliano. Uh, he is an associate professor of history at Campbell University, a former merchant mariner and contributor to G-Captain Maritime. So he knows what he's talking about here. Uh, and the article begins this way. He says the Suez Canal made headlines on Wednesday, made headlines on Wednesday. A uh, 194 foot wide container ship called the Ever Given rammed into the eastern bank of the 120 mile long Suez Canal, uh, traveling at a speed of 15 miles per hour. The 1300 foot, 200,000 ton ultra large container ship came to a sudden stop with the bow aground in Asia and her stern at rest in Africa. That's crazy. Uh, creating a blockage in a waterway that sees 12% of the world commerce pass through it every year. Uh, and then it says, as of Thursday, when this was written, uh, they had not been able to dislodge it. They finally dislodged it again this morning. This is not a story you hear every day. Maritime logistics do not cross most people's minds often, let alone wind up in the national news. But they are nonetheless pivotal, pivotal to global trade. This story provides a stark reminder of the tenuous nature of our maritime global supply chain and the dangers of maritime choke points. So there's the important point. Listen to these stats. These stats are overwhelming. He says the closure of the Suez Canal has massive ramifications. Every day, 3.3 million tons of cargo traverse this waterway. On average, 50 ships arrive at the ports waiting to embark on their day-long passage. As ever given, remains firmly across the canal. Shipping companies will have to fathom the option of sending ships around Africa, adding as much as two weeks to their journey. 
All of this means a slowdown in the delivery of goods, fuel, and essential material between Asia and Europe. Factories, depending on parts from Asia, may have to close, and essential goods and products to battle COVID-19 may be inaccessible. Fuel prices, as already high in Europe, could further increase. Uh, the failure of machinery, human error, natural events may have caused Evergreen to ever given to run ashore, but its impact will resonate far from its banks as it has blocked the jugular of one of the largest trade routes in human history. Uh, so it's going to go on to say, by the way, this boat is the size of uh, of the Empire State Building. Again, I heard that and I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, so going on by 2020. The containerized cargo made up nearly 40% of the 11 billion tons uh, shipped on the world's oceans annually. The movement of goods by container has continually grown, except during the economic recession of 2008 and the tariff fight between China and the U.S. One of the main arteries of this trade route runs between Eastern Asia and Europe. The 23 uh, million containers that move between Asia and Europe in 2020 sailed through some of the history's most contested waters as the Strait of Singapore, and it gives that some of the most relevant today, the Suez Canal. Great Britain controlled all these maritime choke points during its imperial height. It allowed Britain to influence ocean commerce and trade. Today, many of these are patrolled and regulated by international conventions and patrolled by uh, navies, but the Suez Canal is wholly owned and operated by Egypt. So I found that to be fascinating. I didn't know any of that. Uh, I didn't know any of that. But here's the point that one ship, one, whether it be human error, strong winds, whatever else it might be, one ship was able to block and kind of choke out such an important point. Can I make another pastoral uh, biblical connection? We're not in control. We think that we're in control of everything. But friends, there's so many, so much randomness to life and, and so many things out of our control in life that I think in here in the West, we like to think I've got everything taken care of. I've got everything under control. I can, I can make everything happen in my life. And you might be like, well, that's a stretch from the Suez Canal. But how many things in your life every day, every week pop up that you have no control over? Sickness, um, disease, uh, other people's actions, whatever else it might be. Weather which we're going to talk about here in a second. And it reminds us that ultimately we might like to think that we have everything under control, but we do not. And that again needs to point us away from ourselves to our need for a savior. That ultimately we can be grateful that God has all things in control uh, and be reminded that we do not. And speaking of weather, I did just want to highlight our friends down in Nashville, uh, we may we'll call Ian sometime this week. Ian moved down to Nashville recently, but it says this Nashville flash flood leaves four dead and dozens of homes and businesses destroyed. It says some of the heaviest rainfall in Nashville's history caused flooding that killed at least four people over the weekend. Authorities identified two of the four victims. Uh, more than 100 people had to be rescued from fast rising waters. I saw a clip today of a police officer clinging to a tree because this flash flood came. Uh, a resident from one apartment building in Antioch, south of Nashville, told a CNN affiliate that she woke up to a mudslide compromising the building. She said, you don't think the tiny little creek can get vicious. Uh, I know in the church world, there's so many people down in Nashville that a lot on Twitter, a lot of people were posting pictures, John Acuff and others, and it's nuts. Uh, and they got uh, six to eight inches of rain. 
try to fathom that. I know we've had a lot of rain here in the past, but six to eight inches of rain. Uh, you just can't handle that. And again, our, our prayers are for the people down there. The pictures are amazing. Uh, but our prayers for our people out there and down in Nashville, and it just reminds us again uh, that we are not in control. That just because we think we have everything locked up and life is going exactly as we planned, we are not ultimately in control. And so uh, our thoughts and prayers with those down in Nashville, and uh, we would all be um, wise to learn these lessons every time we read these types of stories. Well, coming up next for the next two segments, Dr. Justin Bailey, Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University, also the author of a book called Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age. Uh, Dr. Bailey is going to join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on a beautiful Monday afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University, host of the In All Things podcast, and author of a newish book called Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age, Dr. Justin Ariel Bailey. Uh, Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Brian. It's good to talk to you. It's really good to have you on. Hey, before we jump into your book and another article that you wrote, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like? Well, sure. You did a great job. You nailed the intro, I think. I don't know <laughs> what, I would, what I would add to that other than the fact that uh, I served in pastoral ministry for over a decade in some different um, diverse congregations, Filipino-American, Korean-American, Caucasian-American and uh, have been have worked quite a bit with emerging adults. Mm-hmm. And my work with apologetics has sort of grown out of uh, youth ministry and work with with um, young adults as they ask questions about about God. Uh, again, the book is called Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age. So I worked in youth ministry, too. I'm now a lead pastor of a church, but right out of college, I was a youth pastor for a while. Uh I'd love to hear more of that. Like, what were the kind of questions you were getting from students? You kind of said this kind of came out of youth ministry. I find that fascinating. Could you uh, elaborate on that for us a little bit? Yeah, I always, you know, I teach youth ministry students here now, and I always tell them that uh, youth ministry is one of the best places to start because it really requires you to be able to articulate faith in a way that is accessible mm-hmm. to uh, to students. And so uh, as I was working with with youth ministry students and then young adults, uh, I had been trained in the classical way of doing apologetics, which is having answers to the, the big questions, right. problem of evil, uh, other religions, things like that. And, uh, and yet it seemed like there was something missing. And, and there is one per- particular conversation that led to this book, really. This, this, the book resulted from a conversation I had with a 20-year-old student uh, in which he was telling me, he said, you know, when I'm at church and I'm listening to you preach – it's like you're weaving a spell and I believe and the world makes sense to me. Hmm. And then as soon as I walk out the doors of the church, the spell is broken and I don't know what I believe. I don't know who I am. And that conversation was, was the thing that really made me uh, take a step back and think, well, what, what is happening here? Why hmm. is it that this is believable within the walls of the church? but not, not as believable when they're out in the world. And so as I reflected on that conversation and other conversations like it, I became convinced that 
more was needed than just good answers, uh, but there needed to be also an engagement of of the imaginative context in which they lived. Oh, that's fascinating. Can, speak on that a little bit more. What does help people understand the imaginative context in which they live? Because when I hear apologetics, you know, I grew up exactly as you're talking about. It's make sure we have the answers to the hard questions right. and, and you can debate it and this and that. So uh, help us understand even more kind of the, this yeah. imaginative context you speak of. Yeah, it's funny in this conversation, I, they, there's two group, groups of people I'm sort of writing to, and some are the people who are really interested in the imagination, and some people are really interested in apologetics, and they don't usually talk to each other. Mm. And so the one group is suspicious of the other and, and, and vice versa. But uh, I'm trying to bring them together in some ways. And what I mean by the imagination, well, let me start by saying what I don't mean by the imagination. I don't mean um, a faculty that whereby we escape reality. Mm. Um, I don't mean thing that, you know, only kids use their imaginations. Right. They play pretend, but then you grow up and you don't have to use your imagination anymore. <laughs> uh, what, what I really mean is uh, the faculty that allows us to explore possibility. And we use our imaginations all the time, uh, not to escape reality, but to grip reality more firmly mm. by getting a sense of what is really possible uh, in the world for me. And, uh, the imagination is the faculty with which we hope. So can tomorrow be better than today? That's a question that the imagination is going to supply an answer for. And you are already using your imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always tell people, you know, imagine you uh, in the middle of the night, you wake up and you hear a noise downstairs in your house. Now, your imagination will supply immediately That's right. something to explain that noise. And usually it's something fearful, right? It's somebody's breaking into my house and I have to go deal with it. Um, and and the, the reality is, that as we go through life, we're always using our imagination and our imagination can either be formed by fear and cynicism and despair, uh, or it can be formed by faith, hope and love. And so that's what I'm trying to do mm. um, in addressing the imagination is say you already are imagining the world a particular way. You have a particular understanding of who you are, of how you're related to God Um and what possibilities are open to you and whether faith actually is a box or a cell that you're locked in or whether it's actually something that opens up the world uh, with hope and love. And so that's what I'm trying to that's address good. is is this sense of uh, the felt experience of faith, mm-hmm. uh, which is is felt in the imagination. Oh, that, that's really helpful. Uh, I would love to know, uh, we did an article, we discussed an article last week that increasingly with each generation uh, students or young people are saying that we shouldn't even uh, talk about faith with people of other faiths. We shouldn't evangelize. We shouldn't debate. Um, and so I'm wondering, A, are you seeing that with some of your students? And how would you answer that? Do you see that as a trend? And how would you speak on that? Yeah, it certainly is a trend. And I think that, um, yeah, m- maybe there's something about it that is is positive, that, that young people are seeing. Uh, maybe there's a stridency that has characterized the way that we've approached apologetics or faith in the past that we've been rather than following James's counsel to be uh, quick to hear and slow mm. to speak, we've mm-hmm. been quick to speak and slow to hear. And, and so there, there is something that's good there, um, yeah. I think. But at the same time, uh, the Christian faith does make some claims uh, that are either true to reality or not. You know, Jesus Christ either came out of the tomb on the third day or he didn't. Mm. And um, and so that's the reality. That's the story, right? So we're, yeah, we're not just defending yeah. 
um, a set of extracted truths. We're defending a story about the way that the world is, which has really important implications for how we answer questions like, is there hope? It, it, can tomorrow be better than today? Um, can I build my life on something that's trustworthy? And we all have to ask those questions and answer those questions. And we are you know, surrounded by lots of people who don't necessarily answer those questions the same way that we do. Right. But ultimately, our interpretation of those questions is not just what we think in our heads, but the way we actually live our lives. And in some ways, your life is the argument. Your yeah. life is the apologetic argument for uh, what you have trusted in uh, and where you find your hope. And so I would just say to, you know, to students especially, or the students say, well, we should just give up on apologetics mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, it's, you know, dehumanizing or it's treating other people like, you know, th they are just somebody to be defeated in battle. Yeah, that mm -hmm. that way of doing apologetics, we should stop doing, you know. <laughs> but but there is a way of doing apologetics. There is a way of responding to objections to faith and trying to remove barriers to belief uh, that is not violent, you know, that it, that is actually life-giving. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I'm interested in revitalizing. Yeah, and with the last minute we have left in this segment, thankfully, uh, Justin's going to uh, join us for a second segment after this. Uh, but with like the minute we have left here, I'm going to sound like the total old guy, even though I'm only like 43 years old. But uh, a lot of people, uh, my generation, the generation above, kind of paint the younger generation as not even really interested in things of faith, right? We talk about the nuns and all of this kind of stuff. Um, my mm -hmm. guess is you have a different view of that. Help people understand kind of the spiritual hunger kind of of the younger generations right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it is important to point out that every older generation has thought that the younger generation is not <laughs> as true. hungry spiritually as they are. And and part of this is just uh, a big part of deconstruction is differentiation. Mm. Uh, students are trying to differentiate their faith and differentiate themselves from those who've gone before them. And rather than having the older generation say, kind of write them off as not interested, the older generation really needs them, needs to walk with them. And, and the younger generation needs the wisdom of the older generation and they need the patience of the older generation. Yeah. Um, and then the other, only other thing I'd say is that um, my theology teaches me that God is at work, you know, regardless of whether a particular generation is um, open yeah. at, at any given time to the gospel, God is always at work. And so I seek to enter wherever God is at work and to join what God is already doing. I'm not bringing the work That's of right. God to them. God's already at work. That's right. Well, that's the words there of Dr. Justin Ariel Bailey, assistant professor of theology at Dort University, also the author of a book we've been discussing called Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age. Justin, you also wrote an article at Christianity Today uh, about a topic we've talked a lot about here on the show, and that's particularly, you know, you deal in the in the world of apologetics. Well, the most famous apologist out there has been Ravi Zacharias for the last generation. Uh, and we all know what has happened with him, especially after he passed away. Uh, and you wrote this, apologetics can flourish after Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, but only with lowercase leaders and the local church. What I found to be a fascinating article, but Justin, I'd love to know just kind of on a on kind of a high level, why did you feel like you wanted to and needed to even write this article? Yeah, well, I mean, I think part of it was just processing the grief and yeah. maybe even sense of betrayal at, you know, when all of this came to light and as sort of the accusations mounted and it seemed like it was going to be, um, it was it seemed like it was going to come out that it actually occurred all, all the accusations. Uh, yeah, that it was sort of, even when it happened, even though we sort of 
knew that it was going to happen, it still just really felt like a gut punch. Yeah. And so as somebody working in this space and somebody who was just really profoundly influenced by by Ravi Zacharias, uh, I guess in some ways it was a way of therapy, you know, mm. uh, both for myself, but then also for a discipline that I obviously care about and and want to see thrive and want to see revitalized and reimagined and, you know, want to make sure that as best we can, we can avoid this sort of cycle of, um, you know, propping up a person and not giving it adequate guard guardrails if, if there, if there could be yeah. even, uh, for this sort of cycle of abuse. Yeah. And I, and I know, uh, the major part of the story is the abuse and the craziness, but, but in the world of apologetics, which, like I said, you're writing on, you're a part of, um, what's the autopsy here? I know it, it just happened, but what did we learn from, um, from, you know, maybe how we held Ravi Zacharias on a pedestal to maybe how he did things? Uh, what, what do we, what can we learn, uh, even in the short amount of time from what has, uh, what has transpired here? Yeah, that's a big question. And, and there have been lots of different um, <laughs> competing opinions on what the autopsy is, including some saying we should just stop doing apologetics yeah. altogether. You know, this sort of proves that, you know, when the, the most well-known apologist himself falls, this proves that this was a bankrupt uh, a brain, bankrupt project. And mm -hmm. I obviously can't, uh, can't go there with them, uh, as I've said. But I think that it does reveal a few things. I think it reveals that we have tended to favor the genius mm. over the apostle. Um, and the genius is the person who, you know, we are impressed by, we are in awe of, right. and, and sometimes they can become disconnected from a local congregation or local communities. One of the things um, that, you know, former associate of Ravi said that, you know, Ravi traveled so many, 200, 250 days out of the year and was never really accountable to a local church or a local congregation. And, um, and so I try to make a distinction between uppercase apologists, people like Ravi or William Lane Craig, which you can do it. It's possible to do uppercase apologetics and um, and to do it well, like I think William Lane Craig has been doing for a long time. Uh, but that shouldn't be our primary paradigm of what apologetics is, because if that's our primary paradigm, then we think of apologetics as something that is almost detached from the life of the local church. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that we really need to think about apologetics is something that takes place in local congregations uh, with pastors who have relationships with the people who are asking the questions, uh, with communities where apologetics, where faith is a community project rather than an individual achievement. And so Part of this, um, the way that apologetics has traditionally been done in terms of let's make sure that we stockpile all the answers to all the questions so that we can bring them out whenever somebody asks the question. Um, you know, having all the answers doesn't actually require us to be transformed by the spirit. Um, and so this preference that we've tended to have and the way we've treated apologetics as having all the answers actually is a truncated vision of formation. Uh, and what it really means to to be a follower of Christ. So it's not that we can leave it behind. It's just that we have to fill it out with all of these virtues and, you know, the things that are found in the local fellowship uh, that you can find in the church. Yeah. And, and you talked in this article, there's so much good stuff in here. You talk about distinguishing, but not dividing the message from the messenger. And yeah. uh, we've seen so many pastors fall like celebrities. This whole idea of celebrity culture within the Christian world is probably another discussion, but right. Um, yeah. 
but but how do we distinguish the message from the messenger? Because in many ways, apologetics, the messenger was Ravi Zacharias. But yeah, but, you know, we yeah. got Bill Hybels or other things out this way. How do we do that? Distinguish, but not divide the message from the messenger. Yeah. And I, I wanted to make that point as carefully as I could, because anytime a Christian leader falls, almost always one of the responses that we have is, well, we should put our faith in Christ. We shouldn't put our faith in any particular leader. That's right. And and obviously I, we want to say that, but uh, there's a difference between making that distinction before and after somebody falls. Uh, and And sometimes when we make that distinction really quickly after somebody falls, it can come across as a public relations maneuver, damage control that doesn't actually acknowledge uh, what went wrong or how bad it was. You know, it almost distances us from the public figure who's fallen. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that our institutions uh, form apologists to be a certain way. They form and allow leaders to continue to function the way that they function. And so uh, we can't say, well, look to Jesus, don't look to the apologist in a way that gets us off the hook from actually doing the hard work of making sure that our institutions and churches are healthy and that our leaders are accountable uh, to local congregations. At the same time, uh, this is very important, especially for those of us, you know, like me, who received a lot of help from Ravi Zacharias and who, you know, I still have things that he said that bounce around in my mind, you know, anchors of sorts for faith. And it's really important for us to be able to at least distinguish the message from the messenger uh, because the grace that we receive through fallen leaders is still grace uh, because mm. it comes from Christ. And in the article, I point to uh, something that happened in the early church where the Donatists, um, where it's a group in church history that said that if a minister um, was invalid or unworthy, then that invalidated the grace that came through them. And the church was very clear in rejecting that and saying, no, uh, it invalidates the minister, but it doesn't invalidate the grace that came to us through the minister which is, which is found in Christ. And so we need to keep this intention. It, it, on the one hand, we don't want to say, we don't want to distinguish the message from the messenger so much that we can distance ourselves from, from the sin. We mm-hmm. also need to be part of the repentance, but we do need to distinguish it insofar as the grace that we received, whatever good that we received from someone like Ravi or anyone else who falls, uh, that's still grace and that's still good um, because it came to us from God through Christ. Man, that's such a complex issue and that's a really helpful way to frame it. I really appreciate that. Again, that other voice is Dr. Justin Ariel Bailey, Assistant Professor of Theology at Dort University, also the author of a book, Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age. Just, I feel like we have a lot to talk about, but before I let you go, uh, could you let everyone know where they can find you online, social media, where can they find everything that you've done? Yeah, so pjustin.com, the letter P and then my name justin.com is my website that sort of has all of the all of the things that that I write mm-hmm. and um that's the best kind of landing spot. Uh the In All Things podcast that I host, you can find just by typing In All Things into a search engine. Um uh inallthings.org is the digital uh the digital space and then uh the uh Twitter space is at in underscore all underscore things mm. or my personal twitter is at j ariel bailey uh so yeah that's a bunch of things for people <laughs> but uh the best place is just to go to my website pjustin.com pjustin.com and again we'll put the article up again apologetics can flourish after ravi zacharias international ministries but only with lowercase leaders and the local church justin this was fabulous thanks so much for joining us man have a great day yeah my pleasure brian you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life
Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, really glad to have you joining us today on this Monday afternoon. Well, ever since a year ago now, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we've been trying to end every show with a little bit of good news or inspiration or challenge, something to keep our minds thinking uh, as we go. And one of the places that we go so often on this show, we discussed a tweet of his earlier today, uh, is a pastor out of Nashville, Tennessee, by the name of Scott Saul. Scott has written uh, many great books, including Jesus Outside the Lines and A Gentle Answer. He also blogs at scottsauls.com. That's where we're about to take this blog from. Speaks a lot. He is pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Just an impressive guy. Someone that we really resonate with a lot here. Uh, in, in I want to read his blog post. He's been on the show multiple times as well. But this blog post I found... Uh, to be really helpful, Scott Sauls writes this, critique gently, encourage fiercely. We're going to get as much of this as we can. He says, thanks to social media, we are more connected than ever. We're lonelier too. Social media does have its benefits like steak, wine, and politics. Social media can add value to our lives in moderation. But like steak, wine, and politics, it can also damage health if we consume too much. For example, According to a 2015 Forbes study, a social media engagement, as social media engagement increases, so does anxiety and depression. Rather than create belonging, trading presence and eye contact for a screen can feed narcissism, gossip, comparison, low self-esteem, and isolation. This should not surprise us because digital likes, follows, feeds, and fans are weak imitations of actual in-flesh friends. Promising to cure our loneliness, they rarely deliver. Instead, they add to our loneliness. This loneliness of ours is not a flaw. We aren't lonely because something's wrong with us. We're lonely because something is right with us. Our loneliness is the image of the triune, communal God in us, beckoning us to connect, to know, and to be known to love and to be loved, to befriend and be befriended. Loneliness urges with withdrawn self to engage. It calls the online persona to become person again. It calls the imposter to get healthy by getting real. Loneliness begins to fade when the image conscious self-editor, the retreater, the hider, and the poser in us begins a transition towards transparency. But transparency can be fearsome and disorienting. In an interview about his book, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years, comedian Tom Arnold got honest and said that the reason he writes books, the reason he does comedy, the reason he does everything is because he's deeply broken and is desperate for people to like him. Tom Arnold and our insatiable hunger for likes taps into the image of God in us and our longing to be known and loved, to be exposed and not rejected. It also taps into our fear of being cast out, excluded, diminished, and forgotten by the people we let in. Because ours is a world of judgment, isolation, and fear, because we have reasons to assume the world is not safe, we become social chameleons, blending into the colors and textures of whatever environments we inhabit. We have a chameleon fig leaf self for each situation, our work self, our party self, our church self, our at-home self, our internet self, and the many other selves that we, quote, put on to self-protect. Like the chameleon, we are in chronic adaptation mode tweaking our external colors and textures to blend in and belong and to ward off potential predators. Sadly, this destructive strategy appeals to our frail uh, and our fearful hearts. We want to be vulnerable, to love and be loved. 
yet we are afraid to risk and expose and extend our true selves. But C.S. Lewis was right. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Give a piece of your heart to another person and your heart may be wrung and possibly broken. And yet, says Lewis, the only place outside of heaven where we can be completely safe from all dangers of love is hell. How can we find our ache? How can we find healing for our ache of loneliness? Saul's asks, where can we turn in our search for connection and safe space to know and be known? In our age of church shopping, church critiquing, church splitting, and church leaving, it seems we have forgotten Jesus' vision for the church. We must remember that the church is not a social club for well-dressed posers. It is a hospital for the sick and Jesus, the chief physician. The local church is a detox center for addicts, for those addicted to drugs and sex, as well as junkies desperate for their next hit of porn, gossip, power, recognition, greed, and retail therapy. Jesus's vision for the church as a purposeful, powerful, healing, safe hospital for the sick, uh, for the sin sick addict in all of us stands in stark contrast with our all too common view of the church as an optional, shiny social club add on to our lives. Membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future together. As Bonhoeffer reminds us, he who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself with all of its weaknesses and frailties becomes a destroyer of Christian community. When we dismiss the local church, we dismiss and become destroyers of God's first and foremost love. Sauls goes on to say, if only there were a bunch, if only there were a church resembling the church of the New Testament, we tell ourselves, then we wouldn't be so cynical. And he goes on to talk about how busted up and ugly the early church was. How do we experience loneliness slaying love in the midst of imperfect, messy community? He writes, it has been said, be kind because everyone you're meeting is fighting a hard hidden battle. As we limp towards transparency and community and friendship with our own fears and insecurities, we recognize that we aren't alone. We are all much afraid. We are all feel more insecure than confident, more weak than strong, more unlovable than lovely, more irredeemable than redeemed. When we see that we are not alone, we can reach out to one another. Don't underestimate the power of words. While shaming words can take courage out of a soul, encouraging and affirming words can put courage back in. When we offer critique to another soul, do it gently. When you offer encouragement to another soul, do it fiercely. Uh, But we groan. There are some things that bother me about this community. There are people that I really don't like. Well, moving even toward people we don't particularly like can give us more best opportunities to love. Biblical love, Saul's writes, is neither a secondhand emotion nor a sweet old-fashioned notion. (laughs) Love is actually a battlefield designed to reshape us into the likeness of the one who first loved us when we were not friends to him, but enemies. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. We love not in a sentimental sense, but in the gutsy, costly sense, because he first loved us. We do not behave. We do not have the resources in ourselves to extend such selfless love. No, we are resourced by another, by Jesus himself. Emerson once wrote, the blessing of old friends is that you can afford to be stupid with them. With Jesus, we can afford to be stupid with him. Because he has taken our shame away by moving our judgment day from the future to the past. His death, burial, and resurrection have established us as his beloved bride, as those of whom he is not ashamed to call his sisters and brothers. 
We are and forever will be the cherished and kept daughters and sons of his father, who is also our father. We're not a consumer good. We're not a consumer good to Jesus. Therefore, we are not consumed. We are forever family, fully known, fully loved, completely exposed, and never rejected. We can befriend others because this Jesus is our friend. Such a powerful post there from Scott Saul's friends. Uh, take that to heart. We're all lonely. We all have our struggles. Nobody, nobody is actually the persona of what they put out there on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And so therefore, be careful with one another. Open yourselves up to one another. Be in each other's lives. That's what it means to be the church. And that's how we live as Christ followers. A great article, a great blog post there from Scott Sauls. Well, thanks again for joining us today on this Monday afternoon. We hope that you have a great rest of your day. Join us tomorrow from four until six. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.